Chaumont-sur-Epte Castle looms tall and imposing on the banks of the River Epte. The thick stone walls protect the valuable loot inside, huge collections of weapons, horses and war machines. In July 1167, the mood inside the castle is tense. The garrison are preparing to face an attack. This castle belongs to King Louis VII of France, and the attack is coming from none other than Henry Plantagenet. And you might say that Louis has brought it on himself. While we know that Henry is a hothead who isn't shy of fighting, this assault isn't unprovoked. After years of peace, the two kings are now at war. Louis started meddling in Henry's business, and when some of Henry's subjects in Normandy recently rebelled over a succession dispute, Louis took their side and invaded Plantagenet lands. So Henry is striking back with an assault on Chaumont. And it's a bold gambit. This castle is one of Louis's key military bases and it's very well defended. It seems a difficult target, even for a military mastermind like Henry, but of course, that doesn't stop him. The men inside the castle hear the low rumble of the army drawing near and make their final preparations, sharpening weapons and lining up archers along the ramparts. Henry is approaching on land, following the banks of the river Ept, with knights in mail armour on horseback and foot soldiers tramping behind them. Spears, lances and all manner of unpleasant spiky things glint in the throng. Henry's even brought siege catapults. The garrison watch Henry's army trundle towards them with interest. They have two options, keep the gates locked and wait Henry out in a siege, or run out and meet his army in battle. Henry knows that a siege will take too long. He doesn't have the resources or the patience to be tied up here for months. So, relying on force of personality rather than pure military power, he decides to goad the garrison. We're not sure how he manages to draw them out. Maybe all of Henry's soldiers drop their pantaloons and moon the defenders. All we do know is that the garrison decide they can easily take on the invaders. They boldly march out of the gates. Bad move, because this army is actually just a decoy. While Henry's been noisily occupying the defenders' attention, a gang of hardened Welsh mercenaries, the medieval equivalent of the SAS or Navy SEALs, are approaching. Not by land, but by the river. They swim up silently, slither out of the water and sneak into the castle. Perhaps by throwing up a rope ladder, or, less glamorously, by climbing up the toilet chute. Either way, when they get in, the castle is completely empty. The garrison are all outside, preparing to give Henry's regular army hell. So the Welsh special ops team get to work. They light torches and set the castle ablaze. It's not the age of gunpowder just yet. We're about 200 years too early for a cinematic explosion but dry thatch and wood buildings catch easily in the heat of the French summer. The Welshmen don't stop to admire their handiwork. They slip off as silently as they arrived. Outside, the garrison begin to hear a crackling noise coming from the castle. Then they smell something, or rather they smell two things. Firstly, smoke, and secondly, a trick. 
Behind them, one of Louis's most tactically important military arsenals is on fire. In front of them, Henry's regular troops are, presumably, falling about laughing. It's victory to Henry. Today, Chaumont is still cited by medieval military analysts as a textbook example of how to deploy mercenaries in battle. Yet Louis is far from beaten, and he's not the only one Henry has to contend with. He has enemies springing up from the forests and mountains of Wales to the baking plains of southern France, and he's not getting any younger. Remember, Henry is managing an empire that's never been held together by anyone in history and is bigger than anything a European king has dealt with in about half a millennium. So he's desperate for a bit of help managing this extraordinary workload. And the only people he can really trust, or thinks he can trust, are his family. But what Henry should have learned by now is that blood isn't always thicker than water, and his family will have some ideas of their own. I'm Dan Jones, and from something else in Sony Music Entertainment, this is History. A Dynasty to Die For, Episode 7, Succession. When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Last time we heard about Henry's first major hired help, Thomas Beckett, and what a disaster that was. Beckett turned out to be a human hand grenade. He blew up Henry's plans for governing England, fled the country when he was put on trial, and has spent the last few years slagging off the king from the safety of refuge in France. So Henry is in dire need of allies he can trust, and a plan for the future. He's been in battle mode ever since he took the throne, travelling thousands of miles and constantly navigating complicated political landscapes. It's a stressful job. Even today, most of our elected rulers only last a few years before the stress burns them out. Henry's been doing this for nearly two decades. What's more, the French king Louis VII is being an even bigger pain in the ass than usual. His recent interfering in Henry's affairs is no accident. For a while, they'd been on reasonable terms. Remember that Henry had married his eldest son to one of Louis's daughters. And it looked possible, perhaps even likely, that these two would inherit the French crown one day. But Louis's latest wife, Queen Adele, gave birth to a son called Philip, 
1165, so Louis is extra keen to defend the French crown's territories so he can hand them down to Philip when the time comes. That has pitched him and Henry as rivals rather than allies. Which is why Henry's obsessing over his own family, how best to use them, and so secure his dynasty's future. There's plenty to sort out. If there's one area where Henry and Eleanor's marriage has been spectacularly productive, it's in the royal nursery. In their 15 years together, Eleanor and Henry have produced seven healthy Plantagenet children, four boys and three girls. Given the size and extent of the Plantagenet empire and the number of neighbours it has, that's a very good thing. It means the boys can be trained to take over various parts of the empire, while the girls, well, the girls can be married off to foreign royals to secure alliances. But right now, in 1167, the kids aren't quite old enough to help out. The eldest boy, young Henry, is 12. The eldest girl, Matilda, is 11, although she's already about to be shipped off to Saxony to marry the Duke. Richard's 10, Geoffrey's 9, Eleanor's 7, Joan's 2, and John is a babe in arms. So Henry's going to need Eleanor to pitch in, which is where things get delicate. Although they've been constantly producing children, Henry and Eleanor's relationship isn't totally rosy. For the last few years, it's been getting a little bit strained, and it's particularly strained on Eleanor's side. First, Eleanor needs something new to do. She turns 43 in 1167, and it seems fairly likely that John will be the last child she bears. If her main job is no longer going to be pumping out princes and princesses, what is she going to do? She's far too energetic and capable to see out the rest of her days doing needlework and listening to minstrels sing ballads, and she's not exactly the type to retire to a nunnery. Nor does she want to traipse around after her husband, smiling and looking pretty while he carries out his kingly duties. Because here comes the second issue. It's an open secret that Henry has more than one woman in his life. He has a string of mistresses, two of whom have borne him illegitimate children. His current favourite squeeze is a girl called Rosamond Clifford, the dazzlingly beautiful daughter of one of his barons, who's barely out of her teens. Putting up with rampant infidelity is part of the job description of Queen, but that doesn't mean Eleanor wants her nose rubbed in it. And that's not all. Eleanor is by no means a Thomas Beckett fan, but she isn't convinced Henry's dealt with his highly strung archbishop the right way by hounding him out of England. As we'll see in the next episode, Beckett is already starting to cause trouble from the sidelines, and Eleanor thinks her husband is making a big mistake by not reconciling with him. Finally, she's homesick for the place of her birth, Aquitaine. Southwest France has always been her happy place. She wants to go back and take full control in her own right. In recent years, Henry has started to act like he rules the place directly, rather than on her behalf. The upshot of all of this is that Eleanor needs to work out what her role is going to be in the Plantagenet firm. In her mind, that means getting her own duchy of Aquitaine back and perhaps mentoring one of their children, like her second son Richard, to take it on when she's too old to manage things. And she doesn't want out of her marriage to Henry. Say what you like about the guy, but he's a massive step up from her first husband, Louis. But she does want to keep her distance while he screws his way around his baron's teenage daughters. Call it a medieval modern marriage. 
Anyway, by their separate routes, both Eleanor and Henry have decided in 1167 that they need to sort their marriage out. There's only one problem. This being the Middle Ages, it's Henry who gets to call the shots. And that makes things hard to predict, because Henry's temper has been even worse than usual recently. In fact, there are rumours that he's starting to unravel. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. The world's full of people celebrating their successes, but if the Plantagenets have taught us anything, it's that failing is much more interesting. So that's why I'm certain you're going to love the podcast How to Fail. The very brilliant Elizabeth Day invites guests on to talk about three of their biggest failures and what they've taught them about life. It's a great way to hear a new side to people you may think you know. Guests include Bernie Sanders, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Stanley Tucci. Give it a try. Find How to Fail wherever you get your podcasts. In September 1167, Eleanor takes 11-year-old Matilda from England to Normandy to see her off on her way to marry the Duke of Saxony. It must be a poignant moment for her, the first of her children to fly the nest, and she doesn't know when she'll see young Matilda again. But once she sent Matilda on her way, Eleanor stays in Normandy. She goes on to the Abbey of Beck to meet up with Henry for that high-stakes, we-need-to-talk-about-us conversation. She must be wondering what sort of mood she'll find her husband in. She hasn't seen a lot of him lately, because, as usual, he's endlessly racing round his territories, putting troublesome nobles in their place. But stories are circulating that he's, well, not doing great. Whispers spread about one especially worrying scene when Henry hears someone in his court defending the reputation of a man he's quarrelling with. A chronicler writes that Henry is so unable to contain his fury that he tore the hat from his head, unbuckled his belt, hurled off his cloak and clothes, tore the silk covers from his bed with his own hand, and began to eat the straw on the floor as though he was sitting in a ditch. Pretty unstable behaviour, right? But when Eleanor meets Henry, she finds him in a far more subdued mood. The reason's a sombre one. Henry's mother, the Empress Matilda, has died. She had a good innings. She's 65 when she dies, positively ancient by medieval standards. But that's no consolation to Henry. They were close. Throughout his time as king, she'd been a constant source of wisdom and support. And Empress Matilda was incredibly proud of her boy's achievements. Her tombstone, which she must have approved while still alive, proclaims that she was the daughter, wife and mother of three men called Henry, and that she was great by birth, greater by marriage, but greatest by motherhood. It's hard to say who that's a bigger flex for, the Empress or her son, King Henry. But anyway, the point is that when Eleanor and Henry meet at the Abbey of Beck for old Matilda's funeral, Henry's in a sombre mood. 
and that's a good time to catch him. There's what you might call a spirit of reconciliation in the air. Henry knows that for the moment, he needs people of the same stature and calibre as his late mother to help him rule the vast Plantagenet Empire. So now would be a very bad time to upset Eleanor. She wants to go back to rule Aquitaine, and it seems like she's not going to hold Henry's rampant philandering against him, so long as he gives her that. So they strike a deal. Eleanor goes back to England for a few weeks to gather some possessions and her two youngest children, Joan and John. By Christmas, she's back in France, and the details of her rule in Aquitaine have been fine-tuned. Henry and Eleanor have found a way to make their marriage work, essentially by keeping busy and out of each other's way. And with that settled, Henry starts to look to the future, mapping out what will happen to all the Plantagenet territories after he and Eleanor are dead. He's still only 34 years old, but in the Middle Ages, it pays to be ready. Henry decides that their eldest son, young Henry, will have England and Normandy and Anjou. Their third son will become Count of Brittany, now also part of the Plantagenet portfolio. And Eleanor's favourite son, Richard, will be apprenticed to her, so that he can eventually take over Aquitaine. Where all this leaves baby John is an open question, but that's something for the next generation of Plantagenets to worry about. For now, things are looking dandy. The basic building blocks of the succession are in place. Everything is going to be all right. Or it is until, in 1170, Henry's nemesis comes roaring back to blow up all the Plantagenet plans. Beckett's back, baby. As always, if you're craving more Plantagenet drama, I've got you covered. Join me on This Is History Plus, where every Thursday I release an extra episode revealing the weird details, fun facts and fascinating subplots we don't have time for in the main story. And on top of that, as a subscriber, you'll get all our episodes ad-free. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or review. It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast.